Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello everyone, it's Todd Fredericks again, uh, DO physician, Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I am continuing the third segment in our exploration of pediatrics as a specialty. Uh, just to review, in, in episode one, we talked about how do you get to be a pediatrician, and then the second episode, we talked about developments of, in pediatrics and things that are emerging in pediatrics. And in this one, this is gonna probably be a little heavier because we're gonna talk about uh, what most of us who like kids don't like and that is the super sick kid and so with that i'm going to introduce uh, uh dr neil copeland and and neil i'm glad you've decided to stick through this marathon today and uh and help people learn from from you and what you do uh, so thank you oh great i'm happy to be here so neil listen it, it would be rem it would it would be remiss of me not to ask you about COVID and pediatrics. And I'll frame that with this. So right now we're in the process of looking at mass public immunization in planning. And one of our colleagues has said, we well, gotta remember this vaccine isn't for kids. Whatever they're making right now isn't for kids. And so it got me thinking about, okay, since you're the pediatrician and you're seeing this, and of course our mutual friend, John Bashar is also a pediatrician. He's just a pediatric pulmonologist. And he's told me a little bit about the kids he sees. What are you seeing in terms of children in the age of Rona? Yeah. So I think what's really nice about pediatrics in general is they tend to do well with illness, meaning even if kids get sick, all the organs are healthier and, um, even though they can get really sick, they also have a remarkable ability to get well. So in, in, in terms of coronavirus, a lot of the children actually present asymptomatically. You, in our hospital, we're seeing a lot of kids who come in for other things. They might come in for self-harm and they need to go to a psychiatric institute for inpatient treatment and they have to get screened for COVID and turn up positive or they're turning positive because they have a surgical procedure and they need treated and you wouldn't look at them and think they're sick. So for the most part, uh, it's, it's been a low impact. Now, there are you don't, don't have to look very hard on, on the news to see there are kids who have passed away, and there are kids that can get really sick from this. Uh, but the bright spot is the vast majority of children go through this with no symptoms or very minimal symptoms consistent with another virus. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing one of the areas of concern I have right now, of course, relating to the military and a relatively young and healthy young adult population is cardiomyopathy in the long term for people who get corona. Are you seeing or hearing anything about uh, cardiomyopathies in children who have had coronavirus or cardiovascular effects uh, and sequelae morbidity after their infection? Or is that emerging yet? Yeah, so, so something we have been noticing is something the news would call a Kawasaki-like disease. Mm -hmm. So for for people who know anything about Kawasaki, that's a systemic vasculitis that um, usually pre presents with multiple days of fever, typically five to seven before the diagnosis is made. And if not treated readily within the first 10 days, has a higher risk of having like coronary artery dilation or aneurysms, which can cause lifetime heart issues. Um, so what we're seeing in um, people, individuals who have COVID, which not even necessarily during their acute phase of the coronavirus, 
is developing what's called pediatric inflammatory multi-system syndrome, meaning they will recover from the virus and then develop uh, multiple issues with elevated liver enzymes, high inflammatory markers, uh, inflammation and pneumonitis in their lungs that might not be bacterial, uh, potentially meningitis and cephalitis like pictures with um, change in mental status and get very sick. Actually, uh, the, the morbidity mortality with that condition is, is much higher, specifically because though it's Kawasaki-like, we don't know enough about it because it's a rarer condition uh, related to the coronavirus that the, the, there's no clear-cut treatment algorithm, steroids or antivirals, um, other types of immunomodulators and knockdown inflammation, um, isn't really played out yet. IVIG is another one that's commonly used. Um, and I think West Virginia has just had, I read the news, West Virginia has just had their first diagnosis of a child that had recovered from coronavirus and is now, from my understanding, being intubated from what I saw with the Facebook post by the father. So um, that would be on the more extreme scale of the uh, illness. Recovered, but now being intubated. What happened? Did they relapse or reinfection or what was it? Well, not necessarily relapse. There's probably some wires that get crossed. Uh, we don't necessarily know what triggers Kawasaki. There's a lot that there's a preceding viral illness that starts some indolent um, inflammatory cascade that gets kicked off the simmers mm. and then really almost like a cytokine storm. Uh, you know, you just have a lot of cross-connecting inflammatory pathways that start mm-hmm. to cause inflammation and, and disease, but not necessarily infection. But this child had apparently recovered. They defeated the initial infection with corona and then now have a subsequent uh problem. Yeah, yes. a sequela that probably potentially a trigger from the virus that's then uh, developed into a secondary condition, uh, likely triggered by the uh, the coronavirus. Now, like I said, West Virginia just had their first case, but uh, they've seen a lot more in New York, obviously, with the burden of cases they've, they've been through. So, okay, the, again, these, these little rabbit holes always come up, but I think that it's interesting. John, what do you feel about reopening the elementary schools? Well, uh, my organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, would say that it's really critical for children to get mm-hmm. into schools. And that's not just because we think children are so resilient that we're not worried about them getting sick. Um, really, the reason we say that is there's so, there's so much um, development and education uh, and benefit from an in-school environment that we feel like it's one of those risk benefits, which is we feel mm-hmm. like the benefit of being in school with, with safe measures outweighs the risk of them getting sick. Um, we've seen in West Virginia, there's been a plummeting uh, number of reports of maltreatment and abuse to CPS. Mm-hmm. And we think that's because kids aren't getting the same surveillance as they were before. Those children who are being abused are no longer being identified by teachers or counselors because they're not in school. Kids that are already um, maybe medically fragile, uh, if they're in a home that maybe doesn't have the most stable environment, that medical neglect might start to catch in. Or if they have food insecurity. Is that food that, that some states are trying to give kids outside of school, is that get into the child and are they are they thriving? Now, I will say kids who have resources, I've actually seen BMIs go up because they're a lot more sedentary, but there's probably a lot of kids that are hungrier than they were before. So we really want kids in school because we, we, we need that education. The, the, the flip side of that also is some kids have individualized education plans, which is an agreement federally required by the school to support a child's education needs. That's very hard to do when you're in per- when you're not in person because it usually includes speech therapy. It can include physical therapy, occupational therapy, and uh, speech pathologist. It can include lots of hands-on instruction 
with a teacher one-on-one to help your reading development skills and math. And that's very hard to do in a virtual environment, especially if you're already having trouble in a school environment, putting that in front of a screen is challenging. And with Corona, having someone come to your home is also not easy. So uh, there's a real reason why some kids definitely need to be in school more than home. But there's also a reason why parents need to make the decision to keep their kid at home and do virtual environments when the home and the life support is there. Yeah, John and I were talking about this, about how in his practice he has seen a reduction in admission rates among children who've had, who have asthma because they haven't been in a general population of other children to get other infections. And so I'm wondering, Neil, if you think that at some point in the future we'll risk stratify based upon demographics to include age group, um, vulnerabilities in terms of risk of either physical of illness or comorbidity risk, just like the asthmatic kid, or uh, the fact of, hey, I've got an immune problem or I've got an abuse potential problem at home. I wonder if that matrix eventually gets developed to where we basically say, okay, you're going to go be in school. You've got the IEP, you got to be there every day, but you're going to be there twice a week because you're doing just fine at home. You just need a little bit of help and tutoring in person. I wonder if we'll ever get that sophisticated with this sort of thing and help parents be able to kind of go down and say, yep, yep, this is how often my child should be in school to perform optimally without the risk, without incurring undue risk. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Or maybe that's a pipe yeah, dream I, of an I get engineer. It. I think if we had a, a, I think if we had a wonderful, I would like to think that the idea of developing educational surveillance that could be done through standardized testing would be there. Of course, schools and standardized testing, that's another topic that could have multiple podcasts as far as sure. how those develop, uh, not having biased or, uh, or questions that really select one population over the other. But you're right. If a kid is thriving at home and, in, and you can reduce his risk as much as you can, and you can identify which kids are doing really well and which kids are not doing well and we should pull them in, that would be great. And that could be a home test. That could be sitting in front of the computer, taking a, a, a weekly survey or a weekly test on basic question, basic math and literature. And when kids start to fall behind, they switch more heavily to in-person. I think naturally parents are making a lot of these decisions because you know, they're experts. You, know, you have a kid with cystic fibrosis or really bad mm-hmm. asthma anyways, or they have an immune condition, uh, some type of immune condition or uh, bad allergies. Those families are already saying, can I do this at home? And if I can, you know, why would I send them to school? Now, the flip side is, can they really do it at home? And that's, for some kids, they're just going to fall behind. And knowing that there isn't really that infrastructure that I would love to have that you mentioned um, in place, I think that's really weighs heavily to the American Academy of Pediatrics saying nothing else exists. So let's get them in school if we can safely. Yeah. I think it's going to force the issue. I think it's going to force the issue of improvement of broadband. I think the kids are going to be what drives us. And the reason why I'm thinking that is because right now, if I go to the DHHR website, um, the one significant public alert system product there is the school alerts. Right. So if you go and dig down in DHHR, what you'll see is the school alert system, which is out of uh, the Department of Education, which is basically trying to tell parents, hey, look, the risk of, of the, the instance of COVID is high enough that maybe you want to consider keeping your, your child home, work with the teachers, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if maybe, you know, this old statement goes because it's for the kids. If that doesn't end up driving us to greater sophistication in the delivery of, of prime, especially primary education, that not all one size fits all, but we can tailor these educational needs to reduce total density of kids in the classroom while still keeping ahead of those kids who have IEPs and other special needs, but also 
keeping an eye on those kids who, yeah, they don't need as much oversight, but they need a little bit. So let's figure out a workflow that allows teachers to do that and the system to be able to meet their educational needs. And so I'm interested to see how that that plays out in the next year or two, because I think it's going to be forced. I mean, we already know that we're having to well, del- deliver food by school buses, right? So yeah, we have that need to make sure that children who don't have adequate nutrition get some kind of nutrition during the day. And we're doing that with the school buses. Well, that's an innovative thing we never did before, right? Except in extreme cases, yeah. I think. So yeah. maybe we'll I see. I think if anyone cool. from the Gates Foundation is listening and they want to invest heavily into a almost a, it could be a cell phone or an app device, having some type of easy quizzes that could use as a measuring device or almost a pulse for the health, hmm. uh, educational health of a child hmm. would be great addition or an additive factor in should my child be more in school. Uh, now getting that and getting into the student in the schools, I think um, should come. That would be really nice if it's there. And if someone develops that, I think they're really on the pulse of this new wave of the future. Cause I think a lot of people would appreciate that. Well, I'd also say that it's, it's good seed corn for the future because I don't think this is the last pandemic disease we're going to face probably in our lifetimes. I think it's going to happen again. Uh, the, the, it has been yeah. a, a case study for anybody interested in how to really change an, a, a global approach to things. Um, and it's a whole different conversation about biomedical terrorism, et cetera, but we have to be prepared for this so that we basically feel a ripple and not a tidal wave the next time it hits us that we say, yep, we, yeah. we're going to default into the next sequence. We're going to plan B and we have basically a seamless, a seamless shift over to a, a different type of operations, but one that still allows us to take care of children and the economy and jobs and that kind of thing. I think that's going to be forced. John, Neil, I really do. Hey, listen, yeah. what about, so we got, I'm sorry, that's just the way my mind wanders, but I thought it was an interesting thing, Thread. Tell us about inpatient pediatrics. What what are the pediatric subspecialties that you find in hospitals? And maybe that's a silly question, but maybe people don't know. Yeah, so we have, you know, essentially what you would expect to see with adults. Uh, so we have pediatric cardiologists, we have pediatric rheumatology, um, we have nephrology, which is kidney doctors, pulmonology, lung doctors, neurologists, neurosurgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, um, vascular, vascular surgeons, infectious disease, um, endocrinology, um, hematology, oncology. So if it exists really in the adult world, uh, it, it pretty much exists for pediatrics. An area that probably is not in the adults would be uh, behavior and development. You know, you can do that fellowship as a family medicine doc, but tends to be a pediatric population that's mm-hmm. management of like, you know, mental health disorders such as aut- or developmental disorders, speech delays, developmental delays, autism spectrum disorders, et cetera. Interesting. So there's, there's an old kind of uh, uh, statement that says, you know, basically that pediatrics is just adult medicine only in the miniature. And in some cases that may be true, right? I mean, if you have a, a cardiothoracic surgeon, the heart as a younger person is a lot like the heart as an older person, just a lot smaller model, right? And a lot smaller thread. Yeah. But so how are, where are the areas of pediatrics that are really divergent in the inpatient practice from adult medicine? Where are the, what are some of the areas of specialty that are very much like adult medicine, just smaller? Can you, is that, is it fair to be able to look at it in that term? Are there, can you distinguish like that? No, I think it's, that's pretty much, that makes a lot of sense. I think in areas that we focus on a lot that you don't see necessarily in adults is, some kids with, you know, conditions that don't really equate to living a long life. You know, there are genetic conditions and congenital mm-hmm. conditions that cause a short lifespan that you might not necessarily see. So those are complex medical need children and you can get whole clinics 
set up for that, uh, where you're seeing lots of people in, a, in one clinic visit or a very specialized hospitalist that takes care of those kids in conjunction with other specialists. Um, the other area that we see a lot, and I think we actually treat really well, we're actually looking at it in a study, is uh, um, DKA, um, so diabetic ketoacidosis. We see that a lot because we have a lot of kids that have type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you still see that in the adult world because they grow up and they're type 1. But pediatric pediatric intensivists treat that a little bit differently than adults. Uh, adults tend to treat it more like just hyperosmolar disease because you have a, a type 2 that comes in with really high insulin and they put one bag of fluid, hydrate them, and then they turn on and off the fluids and the insulin based off the sugar. And in pediatrics, we use a two-bag method where we have two bags with different combinations of electrolytes and sugars. So we never turn off the insulin, but if the sugar goes low, we turn up the sugar that we give them. Mm-hmm. And then if the sugar gets too high, then we turn off the sugar that we give them, but we never touch the insulin because we know that a continuous glucose insulin infusion is critical to get that, uh, the potassium normalized and the acidosis down and including hydration. So, uh, there's a couple of areas. I think we do things a little bit differently only because we just see it. So much. Well, you know, um, I would say that it is a lot like adult medicine, but everything we have is is weight based. So we're constantly having to think about the drugs we're giving, the amount that we're giving. Uh, we don't really have fixed doses like you you benefit from in the adult world, which is really nice. And when we have family medicine rota- residents come over, that's really one of the things that they talk about a lot is parents tend to ask a lot of questions more than their adult patients ask about themselves. And I don't think that you know. People care about their kids necessarily more than they care about themselves, but they definitely think a lot about what we're doing to their child. Uh, and I think sometimes as an adult, we just accept what the doctor says and we're pretty happy with, with, with okay, that sounds best. Let's get it done. Um, so they're really surprised how often they have to talk to a patient and a parent about what they want to do just for the child compared to the adult side. So there is a lot more bargaining, I think, that you get than you get in the adult side. And then, of course, the pharmacology isn't necessarily different, but it's, it's mathematically different. I think they do. I think most parents would are sa- self-sacrificing for their kid. I can see that. And I'm I, sure. And They're I, definitely self-sacrificing. And, yeah. Um, they just ask lots and lots and lots of questions. You know, it's interesting, and it's, again, completely off the trail, but there's no real reason why you can't run a continuous insulin and, uh, and substrate infusion in an adult. There really isn't. Not in the short term. I mean, long term, you wouldn't want to give insulin all the time. That'd be a real problem. But, I mean... But I mean, as far as in the acute phase, because it's been just what you described, an adult, I'd hydrate the heck out of them. I give them a whopping dose of glucose and some insulin to follow and start trying to drive that sugar down and give them some substrate for to, to reestablish cellular metabolism. But it's kind of interesting, that nuance of just, just keep them both running and just do serial glucose monitoring and make sure your glucose levels are responding properly, but keep the insulin just infusing. That's really cool. I like that idea. We call it a two-bag method. And one of our residents who had a friend with internal medicine was sitting talking to them. This is one of the benefits of residency where you're sitting around with friends in other domains. And she was, he was, had a diabetic patient or a DKA patient he was managing. And our resident who was just on the PICU rotation went, what are you doing? That's crazy. Cause they were constantly turning things on and off. And, and it was just, she felt like maybe a delay in where you want to get. So she told him, uh, and they did a small study and they found that we get our potassium down faster. We get to a, a steady state of sugar faster and mm-hmm. not necessarily too fast because you don't want to go too fast, Mm-mm. but we got to our endpoint a lot faster and we didn't have, we didn't have any rebound hyperglycemia like they were seeing in their patients. So, um, so I think, you know, just my gut influence and it was a small study. It's, it's, it's apparently going to be replicated. Uh, now the resident graduated, they're still looking at it, but, uh, you know, the two bag method is just one of those things that you get people together in different specialties. They can 
learn best from each other. That's pretty awesome. So what's the longest pediatric subspecialty? Probably neurosurgery? Um, the longest, um, you know, it might be pediatric neurology because it tends to be mm. three or four years after. So three years of residency and then a three or four year fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, if you went into surgery or neurosurgery, yeah. um, that's going to be, of course, go down the surgical route. You have a five-year residency for surgery and then a three-year, four- or five-year fellowship for surgery for pediatrics. Surgery, yeah. pedi- just pediatric surgery in of itself is very competitive. Uh, and it's three years after your five-year surgical uh, general surgery uh, residency. And then a neurosurgical fellowship. And then you would do a neurosurgical on top of that. Yeah. My gosh, you talk about an investment. You're, you're, you're now dealing with a fifth of your life just after medical school. You're dealing with yeah, 10, 12 years of training, but I think <sighs> those people do find what they love. Even though those are obviously well-reimbursed jobs, it's such a niche of medicine, and it's just you know, mentally such a hard, and really not mentally, but tactile. You have to have a lot of uh, dexterity to do those jobs. Mm. Those people absolutely love what they do, and they're in their own breed, and they were born for it. I really feel that way. So listen, we all have our stereotypes, I'm sure, of who the specialists are we don't like talking to. And I don't want to alienate you or anything, but let's just say, who are the easiest pediatric specialists to talk to and who are the ones that require a little more nuance? Is it the same as adults in adult medicine? You know, probably the same as adults. I think it's just that mentality of how you deal with your stress. I think in general, I think across the board, all your pediatric trained ER physician, intensivist, NICU doctors, are going to be easy going. I, I just 100% believe that. I think if you bump into a pediatric anything, they're going to be pretty nice. I think you have some people that are in their own realm. It's hard to talk to just because they live in a little different place in their mind than we live into, like genetics. I mean, I love all our geneticists, and actually they're very wonderful and they're great to talk to. But just I think IQ-wise and kind of their headspace is just a lot different than I built, and they live in an area of medicine that, their expertise there isn't something that most even general physicians don't get a ton of training as far as mm-hmm. my entire subspecialty trainings on genetics. That can be challenging. Uh, but I think the easiest ones to talk to are going to be general ones and the harder ones are going to be your surgeons or your intensivists just because they live in a, a world where they have to turn things on and off mm-hmm. and they have to be – their, their, their normal personality is compatible with that type of a stressful environment. So they might be the hardest. But again, with that being said, I've never found anyone in my profession necessarily challenging to talk to. Do you all wear bow ties? Is that a requirement? <laughs> you know, both. If I think if you see someone wearing bow ties, they probably really want to do infectious disease because they don't want that fomite and that tie hanging around. A lot of pediatricians do not wear even ties. Yep. Um, and but I, I, I feel like I see uh, a lot of future infectious disease doctors who wear bow ties because they do want that formal look, but they don't want something hanging down and getting grabbed and, and rubbing all over everything. Yeah. I have a personal vendetta against ties. It, it, it ties and white coats for me are anathema to medic to good medicine. And I, so there's yeah. the, the Cleveland clinic of course is known for white coats and everything I walk in there. I'm like, guys, literally they're vectors for infection. They really are. You you can't have any of that on. You got to change yep. your clothes every single day and wash them every single day because you're going to track something. But that's I, I've noticed a lot of pediatricians wear bow ties, and I never couple. I don't know why I didn't couple it with infectious disease, but it makes total sense. I can see exactly why because no one's grabbing that thing and it's not going to fall on someone's face or get coughed on as much. So yep. that's pretty cool. So so Neil, have you done much NICU work or uh, 
pick you work? So I did nursery work. Uh, I saw that you know, question as far as our physician, general pediatrician kind of slated to deliver NICU. Depends on the level of the NICU. You know, some NICUs are going to be slated and they're going to be classified as NICUs just to take care of, of like late preterm. So 32 weekers, 33 weekers, 34 weekers. I think most general pediatricians should be comfortable out there training, taking care of children uh, 30 weeks up, um, maybe 32 weeks up uh, for basic NG feeds with, with gastric lavage if they need to get the extra amount. We call feeders and growers. Um, most pediatricians are also really comfortable treating simple CPAP for young babies. Um, so general pediatricians, easily a level, um, like, uh, I can't remember if it goes three, two, one or one, two, three. I think it's one, two for low yield. And then your most critical is like a level three NICU level three NICUs are going to be your neonatologists. Those are the ones where everybody, a lot of kids are on a vent or they have gastroschisis and their guts hanging out in a big silo or they're on an oscillator vent or an ECMO, et cetera, which would absolutely require really specialty care. Cause also all those kids are coming in at, 25, 26, 27, 28 weeks, and MLs of fluids make a big difference in their day. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you like dealing with the, the really little ones, like the 25 and 26-weekers? So I am not someone drawn to uh, the NICU. I think everything I love about pediatrics, which is getting in there, getting to interact with the families, getting to touch the child, interact with the child, is, is really important to me. In the NICU, it's the opposite. You go in, and you got to be quiet. And you don't want to necessarily disturb because stress and noise can really make or break how well that kid does. Uh, and it can have a big impact on really their survival if you stress them out. Uh, so the nurses almost rule the roost in, in big NICUs because they know when the child can be examined. I remember vividly as a resident, is it okay if I examine the child now? And they would let me know when it was the best time to examine them. Mm. Uh, and you're, you're talking about managing TPN and what, what trace elements to include. Uh, making little changes to the vents based off the blood gas. But so it was a very, what I felt like, remote medicine. I didn't get to touch the patient very much, um, but I had to manage things that were really important, and it was a numbers game. Not necessarily the type of medicine I, I love. Not to say there's not cool procedures. I mean, there's there's a UVCs uh, to be put in. There's chest tubes sometimes. You're, you're intubating little teeny tiny airways, so it's a very particular skill set. But for a lot of it, it's just not the type of medicine that I enjoy. Yeah, it is extremely intense, and it's a very high level of internal medicine. And I, what kills me is when you look at really premature babies, how their skin is translucent, and yeah. you're, you're looking. There's nothing that in that there's. I don't think there's a greater example of the fragility of a human being than walking into a NICU, and you realize this tiny little human being and their life. They are extraordinarily fragile. Everything's fragile about them. Yeah. And I have just a tremendous, a tremendous amount of respect for the delicate nature. It's like watchmaking to me. Like you, like you just alluded to, Neil, putting an endotracheal tube into a 26-week child is not a trivial task. And it's, it, it's akin no. to watchmaking. It's just unbelievable the delicate touch it takes to take care of those little children and get them to a point where they actually get discharged, and then they use in in a few years you you see them and they're on a tricycle. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. that it's yeah. mind boggling to me that we can even pull that stuff off and you know cannulating umbilical umbilical veins and stuff. I mean it just just crazy crazy tiny everything's yeah, tiny. Yeah, neonatology is a very special area of medicine, and I have tremendous respect because it just takes a not just a special person to deal with that because it's, obviously these kids are fragile and. Unlike general pediatrics, where most kids are healthy and they're going to do great, it really does depend on the day-to-day decisions that you make 
sometimes minute-to-minute decisions you make, whether that kid gets another full life or he doesn't make it out of the premature stage. And I'm not necessarily geared for that, but I I love the people that are because we need them. And uh, that's another area of medicine where uh, it's just, you know, transformative how young now we can get kids. I think in Japan there was a 24-weeker maybe recently. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're really pushing the limits of viability, and uh, that's just incredible to me. Okay, so let's let's talk about pediatric oncology. Who goes into that? Because that's like it, that's like everything, everything that it just strikes fear into my heart. The one thing I can deal with adults that die, I can deal with all. It's the it's the I don't want to attend a kid who dies. How do those guys operate yeah. in your mind when you see a pediatric oncologist? What is it that allows them to pursue that work, knowing that a large cohort of their patients will not make it? Well, they won't make it into adulthood or even young adulthood that they're going to pass yeah. away. What is that? How do they, how do they do that? So most of them will tell you they love it uh, because of the medicine. Actually, for the most part, with most common pediatric and uh, um, oncological uh, conditions are going to have a, a, a great survival rate. You talk about hmm. greater than 90% for a lot of the common conditions, Wilms tumor and uh, neuroblastomas and ALL, et cetera. I mean, they have a really good survival rate when caught, typically when they're caught. So what they love about it is they get to guide these kids through this pathway that probably has a good survival rate, but it's a good survival rate because of hematologists, oncologists. They've really put the time into the research and developing what's called kind of treatment pathways. Um, it, uh, it's basically uh, a group, a, a big organization that um, kind of sets standards of what I think it's children's oncology group and they set standards on if you fall into this, this category of diagnosis, this is your roadmap. This is when you get your labs. This is when you get your chemo. This is when you get your follow-up chemo. This is when you get admitted. This is when you go home and for kids stay on that pathway and they keep the same conditions as far as the type of cells, et cetera. Uh, then they have a great, great realm of success. Uh, a lot of one, one of my interests in oncology individually was you get to take care of your kids when they're really sick. You get to see them really, really well, and overall, they tend to do well if you get that diagnosis right and you keep them on that pathway. So I think they like that. I think they like the critical care medicine. I think they like the outpatient setting. I think they like the genetics and the nitty-gritty pathophysiology and pharmacology that goes in, and it's hard to replicate that in any other specialty. You can get sick kids, but you don't tend to get a clinic, too, and that's going to be an intensivist. You don't tend to do general pediatrics in addition to intensive care practice. So they get a full breath of sick, happy, sad, um, and then nitty gritty science. And I think that's what draws a lot of them. Some of them also have really personal connections. They connect empathetically to those kids really well and, and get a real passion in managing that population so much so that right now there's a little bit of a, probably a supply and demand mismatch, meaning there's more people probably in the market than we need. And I'm not saying anyone should be steered clear of what their dream is, but you know, professionally, uh, it's going to get increasingly challenging to find a quick job or maybe the ideal job because there's a lot of people out there looking for jobs. Mm. Okay, so Neil, we got a, a couple questions and we're done. So just a few more. So what have you learned in practice that you wish you'd have known prior to any specialty and would you go back into pediatrics if you had it to do all over again? Well, the second question is easy. Absolutely. I think I found what I love to do, so it's not like I work. I mean, I really, really, really do enjoy what I do. I don't ever dread going into work. And I just can't imagine, uh, you know, going into anything else. And maybe I would have been in happy other places. I don't know, but I'm, I'm too happy to, to consider potentially anything else hindsight. 
Uh, something maybe I wish I knew before was working as a team uh, in, in an organization. I think medicine trains us really well to almost be a cowboy because in medicine, you don't want to look stupid. So you only want to answer the question when you know it. You want to avoid the question or stay silent if you don't know it. So you don't necessarily learn to speak up. Uh, they kind of squelches some of that um, natural inquisitiveness that a lot of us have before we get into medical school. And then h- how do you compete for procedures and for residencies and, you know, class placement, et cetera. So I think it really does make us pretty competitive, scared to fail, and really want to show off what we know. So if you take all those, that training that med school, I think inadvertently teaches us, uh, sometimes you go into an office environment and it can make you hard. You want to be the smartest person in the room, but that's not necessarily the best thing to be. You want to always be right, never be wrong, but that's not always the best thing to be. And learning as you get into a more collegial environment, academic environment, all the things that I think are bred into you as a medical student, we need the reverse out of our position leaders. We need position leaders that inspire people when they walk into the room that use that bring the intelligence up when they come in. So they're pulling from their nurse, the maximum amount of information they can get and helping them make the process for the treatment better. They're pulling from their pharmacy staff. They're pulling from their medical students and the residents and their physicians, assistants, et cetera. You really need somebody leading a medical team. And none of that includes it's my way or the highway. And I really wish I would have done that more as a, and really understood that more as a medical student because I think your first couple of years coming out, having an argument about why can't I do this? This should be the way. This is the standard of care. I'm the physician. Why are you not doing that? I think those quick, that quick learning curve of you got to work processes, not necessarily preach from a uh, physician tower. Uh, you learn that pretty quickly, unfortunately, for some people. Hmm. I, I, I have a, I have a, a, a part of my life as an academic that I have to ask students some questions sometimes. And I always ask them what the most important word in medicine is, uh, or the most important quality that a physician can have. And they give me, and I give them a selection of words and they come up and invariably with everything, but what I think is the right word. And that's humility. And I think a, a good physician always has to remind themselves of all the things that they don't know and that that person that's working next to you may actually see the clear picture and you have to leverage them. You have to respect them enough to ask them what they're seeing to help you take better care of your patients. And I, I, I think all of us, if we're smart, we learn that either very quickly uh, or we or we go into our training and our early practice with that understanding or we learn it very quickly. Because if you don't learn that, you're just going to be miserable as a practitioner. It's so much more liberating when you know that you have nurses that trust you enough to tell you things because they, you know, you're not going to bite their head off. You learn a tremendous amount about your patients that you never would have learned otherwise. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, one way that, you know, a tool that I found and I've been teaching this uh, with medical students now at West Virginia university is um, the American Academy or the American medical association, AMA, whether you like them or not. No, everybody's, they're not on the top of everyone's necessarily love list, but they make this book, this really small book. It's actually pretty affordable. It's called Health System Science. And it's essentially everything they feel like we should be adding in medical school that we're not getting right. And a lot of it is what's quality improvement, uh, teamwork, leadership, medical leadership, followership, how to uh, you know lead and be graceful as far as a safe culture. How do you how do you challenge your own care and examine your own care and be comfortable being wrong, but learning from it. 
And it's a little, it's basically a health system science book that anyone can pick up. Very digestible, not a huge book. I, I think it's under maybe 250 pages, but that's with the index and references, et cetera. So uh, anyone that really wants the bigger picture of the healthcare industry that they're getting into and have the skills, they're going to need to be great and maybe shorten your one to three years after residency uh, learning curve, uh, I'd pick that up. That's pretty awesome. I'll put that in the show notes too. John, or Neil, why do you like being an Air Force doctor? You know, I like being an Air Force doctor. I think it's fun to serve. I mean, I think when you go into medicine, most of us love the idea of service and love the idea of giving back to our communities. Giving back to the Air Force was just another way to take my unique talents and abilities. I'm not a pilot. I wanted to be an astronaut, but you know, I have vision problems, so I couldn't. But uh, giving what I could back to the country in a way that some people don't recognize. And uh, the, the mission the Air Force does is more than just flying planes and dropping bombs. It's, it's, it's really, you know, especially I think we've seen the military's influence on, on the coronavirus, especially the National Guard response. It's really a, a mission that affects home and away. And uh, it's just a way to give back. And I love the medicine. I love the people. If, you, if you've ever been in the military or interested, I mean, the community in and of itself is nothing like you've ever experienced. I mean, you really leave your family, usually go to the base, but then you quickly find new family members because of that military connectivity that's built into to your new location. Yeah, I think so too. I'm, I, I'm always in the recruiting mode of trying to get kids to understand what a great opportunity serving in the uniform is as a physician. And they're always, well, you could die in combat. I said, you could die in a bus accident. You know, I mean, it, it, there's yeah. a lot of misperceptions about what military medicine is, but I would agree with you 100% that the relationships you form are quite unlike anywhere else you'll ever find in your professional career. And you have a shared common goal of uh, taking care of others. And you also have a rank structure that if you have good leadership that recognizes that that is the mission, it empowers you. Um, yeah. It, it does. It makes it a lot easier to practice because I think most military leaders will say, yeah, it's important we get our, our EHR entries done, but it's more important that we take care of that soldier or that airman or that sailor. So do that first and we'll figure out this weird, wacky EHR thing later. Um, that is yeah. super. I, I have a little story to that. I was in, uh, I was in Alaska and I had a kid diagnosed with retinoblastoma and I was able to put him on a plane, fly him to Will's Eye Institute in Philadelphia and getting treatment. And then the Air Force moved his family there. There's very few health insurances in the civilian partnership that would allow you to fly someone across the country and then move their family so they could be close to where they get the best treatment. Uh, so there's a lot of not only service advantages, there's just a lot of advantages of the military health system that lets you take care of your patients well. And one of them is not them not having to worry about how they get their prescription filled or how they make this procedure paid for because the resources are there. Uh, yeah, and, and before I ask you the last question, which I ask everybody, I got to put in a plug for Fisher House. So those of you guys who don't understand uh, what Fisher House is, Fisher House is the Ronald McDonald House of the military. And the thing you need to know about the Fisher House, if you're looking for a place to donate funds to, is Fisher Houses are given the property to put the houses on, but the Fisher Foundation builds the house. So if you go to a military installation, there's a Fisher House, the military afforded them the property to build it on. But then the Fisher Foundation builds the house, and each one of them is independently support, self-supported. So the military isn't paying for Fisher houses. 
And that's uh, I have a I have an axe to grind with uh, the new uh, Longstreet Regional Medical Center because apparently they didn't plan for a Fisher House in the new facility. So like they went through all that and then realized, wait a minute, you got a kid who's been hurt in Germany. Yeah. Your family flies overseas and they have no place to stay. And all you had to do was yeah. give the Fisher Foundation the property on that new reservation to build the house, and they would have taken care of all those costs, and you wouldn't have any problems. So if anybody's interested, I'll put the link in there, and you want to donate to a good cause. My, I have a niece who I love dearly. She actually works at a Fisher house. Um, and so I know something about the organization as well from that perspective. Donate to the Fisher house. And, and the other thing you need about Fisher houses is you don't donate to the system. You donate to an individual house. So if you know of, I'm sure they had one at, at Elmendorf. I'm sure they had one, certainly at Travis. They're going to have one in almost any major military medical facility. Pick a Fisher house that you want to support. doesn't matter where they're at. Find one and send them money because they, 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 they do everything. They provide laundry services. They provide transportation if necessary in the local area. You know, they provide food and, and snacks and, and playgrounds for smaller children. So if a family shows up and they've got a sick or critically injured person, a service member, it's the Fisher house that's actually probably going to help put them up and take care of a lot of their needs. Because a lot of these parents, they get on a plane and they bolt off because at the first sign their kids hurt, they find out where they're at and they show up with nothing. And the Fisher Foundation turns around and make sure that they have the toiletries and they have all that stuff that they forgot as they were running out of the house to go see their loved ones. So I think it's a great organization. I know they do a lot of work uh, that's very good for people and, and comforting folks who are really grieving and suffering over the over injury and loss. So, okay, John, or Neil, I keep John, but sorry, I got two Air Force officers and both are pediatricians that I deal with. So, Neil, what's what have I not asked you that's most important as we close this? What didn't I ask you in this long, and you've been very patient, interview about pediatrics that you think I should have talked about that you think is really important? You know, I, I think we cover the most. I think any pediatrician that doesn't bring up the, the importance of vaccines and keeping your vaccine scheduled and avoiding the bargaining uh, uh, with a patient and getting them on an alternative schedule would be really important. I didn't mention this before. Maybe it should have been added to my list. I see a lot of kind of not on time vaccinations from from patients that come from non-pediatricians. And I think the, the thought is maybe they don't know, how, they don't recognize or maybe don't appreciate as much as a pediatrician how important it is because it's not necessarily drilled into us. It's just part of the core care that we provide. But uh, staying with the CDC vaccination schedule because it keeps kids on time to get the earliest protection they can get from diseases that can cause a lot of morbidity and mortality to them is really important. Um, and... Uh, so if you are, are a physician and you're taking care of kids, vaccinate them on time. And if you need help um, having those conversations, there's a lot of great motivational interviewing resources out there for vaccination. I, you know, I, I think it's I'm going to add to that, uh, John. I tell the medical students, I, I refuse to let them use the term anti-vaxxer. I think it's an insulting thing to call someone an anti-vaxxer for this reason. I don't know many parents. There are a few who are awful, but most parents love their kids. And the noise of social media and the noise of people around them creates a cognitive dissonance within them that says, this vaccine could harm my child. It's better for a doctor to say they're vaccine ignorant or they just don't know enough information and use the skills to teach them to drown out the noise from social media and everything else and give them real information that they can make a, a good decision for their child because none of us want to see measles. We don't. It's a bad thing. We don't want to see that stuff. 
we don't want to see polio in kids. We don't want to see any of that. But it's counterproductive. If you're a medical student or a resident and you use the term anti-vaxxer, if I ever heard it, I would beat you verbally senseless. Because all you're going to do is create a further division between a concerned parent and the medical community. You need to take the time to sit down with them and explain why they don't have to worry about their child getting something terrible because of a vaccination. Uh, and yeah. be objective with them. It's rare that it's just a vaccine. It's, it's typically... Uh, they are really scared about autism. They have a family member with autism, even though that, that connect is not really there. That's palpable for them. Maybe their kid actually had an anaphylaxis reaction to a vaccine mm-hmm. and they can't get it anymore. So there's always a why. And that's the beauty of motivational interviewing for lots of things. It helps teach us to, to dig why and then navigate a relationship moving forward that opens that door up for conversation. I think a lot of people feel like motivational interviewing. If you don't get them to say yes every time, it's a failure. No, 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 no. The innovate, motivational interviewing is, getting permission to talk about it, opening up the chain and keeping the chain of dialogue open so you can work towards the yes in the future. It's developing a relationship is what it is. And and all trust starts with yep. a good relationship. And once you develop that relationship and you develop the trust, then you're going to be a far more effective practitioner. And the parents will know that you're giving them the best you can, I think. Yeah. 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 Neil, thank you. I know it's a Thursday. I'm sure you've had a very long day and you've still taken the time to answer a lot of questions, some of which I didn't even have scripted. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for that. Hey, no problem. I really appreciate it. Any time anyone has any questions too, uh, yeah, I can send you my contact information. If they're inquiring about pediatrics and have specific questions, you can always point them in my direction. And I don't mind to give them a, uh, at least an objective view from my perspective. Yeah, and the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you on a mental retainer in that I know that COVID looks different in six months to a year, especially for pediatricians. So we're going to have another conversation that's COVID-specific, probably just a half an hour of an update of where's COVID with regard to the various strata of pediatric populations. Because it used to be that a 22-year-old didn't see a pediatrician, and now I know 22-year-olds are still going to their pediatricians. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you guys have to deal with all that. So maybe in uh, six months to a year, we'll have another talk about uh, COVID and, and what we now know about the risk with children and, and young adults. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. I'll look forward to it. Neil, thank you. Uh, have a great afternoon, okay? Yeah, you too. You betcha. As with all these conversations, you guys, this is a snapshot in time and things do change over time. And, um, and here's Neil. He's done. I'm going to shut down his his line. Bye, Neil. Um, yeah, long segment, third segment. I hope you got a lot out of it. Please send feedback. If you have a question about pediatrics again, I'm going to put it down. I'm going to say, Neil, I got a question. What are you going to talk about with that? And um, keep that dialogue going. For you medical students and residents uh, who are out there and you have questions, I will post uh, Dr. Copeland's contact information. I'm sure he'd be more than happy to be a mentor to you. Um, Even if you're a family doctor and just say, I need more time with pediatric patients, it is not wrong to seek out a pediatric fellowship year. And these things are all flexible. You can go to a program and say, I'm a family physician. I've done my residency, but I'd really like to get a little more experience in pediatrics. Um, There's ways of working those deals. And a lot of it comes down to relationships and getting to know someone and telling them what your goals are. Um, Perhaps you're going to work in an austere part of the country as a family doctor and you want to feel more comfortable with inpatient peds. 
I can easily foresee being able to do a year, maybe not a full hospitalist fellowship, but even a year of additional training or a six-month rotation in inpatient peds if you're willing to put the time and investment in to take care of some really sick kids and get more comfortable with that. Uh, as always, Rotations tries to be a resource, and we want to make sure that you feel it's a good product. So if you have any comments, leave them. Uh, you can certainly get me on Facebook, TR Fredericks at Facebook, or um, at Rotations PCAST on Twitter, or at Media Medicine. And um, of course, my, my other Twitter handle is Medical Cinema. So if you want to get hold of me on Twitter directly, at Medical Cinema, pay attention to the disclaimer and have a great afternoon. Take care. podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian. Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi and at Rotations PCAST or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner hater.